Well, I wonder if I was to ask you today, what do you think Jesus' primary message was during his earthly ministry? I wonder how you would answer that. What was the thing that was most important to Jesus? Now, I fully expect if I did a survey this morning that the response I hear would have something to do with love. Some of us would say, well, Jesus said we're supposed to be loving and we're supposed to be kind and we're supposed to be nice to one another. Others of us would say, well, Jesus' primary concern was first about loving God, secondly about loving our neighbors, and then thirdly about loving the lost. Now, if you answered in those kind of a ways, well, well done, uh, but you're wrong. You wouldn't be entirely right. As they used to say in catchphrase, do you remember? It's good, but it's not quite right. That was supposed to be an Irish accent, and I realized it was kind of Welsh Bangladeshi, so sorry about that. But Jesus did teach, didn't he, about love. In fact, he categorically said that we should love one another. In fact, Jesus was even more radical than that and more countercultural than that. He said we shouldn't just love each other, but we should love our enemies. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. I wonder how it's going for you today, loving the person that hates you the most. How's it going? I'm going to leave a slightly awkward silence, because I can. Is that too long? We should love our enemies, Jesus said. That's radical stuff, isn't it? It's countercultural stuff. Now, there's no denying whatsoever that love was at the very center of Jesus' message. Jesus said that loving God actually was the greatest commandment. If you do nothing else, Jesus was saying, then make sure as a first commandment, the greatest commandment, that you love God, and then loving your neighbor is a, a close runner-up, or actually, was it just an outworking of loving God in the first place? But I want to suggest to us this morning, at the beginning of this new teaching series, that love was not actually Jesus' primary concern. You see, if Jesus had been running around first century Judea saying to people, would you please love one another? Would you be nice to one another? Would you be kind to each other? I don't think Jesus would have been crucified on a Roman cross. Not even the Romans crucified people for being loving. But the very fact that Jesus died so brutally on a cross suggests to me at least that there must have been something at the very core of Jesus' message which was way more contentious than simple love and way more scandalous than calling and inviting other people to be loving. You see, whatever it was Jesus was preaching got people excited. That's the whole point of preaching, by the way. Can I get a woo? Yeah, okay. We'll work on it for the rest of the year. Whatever it was Jesus was preaching about... It did something in, in the spiritual realm. Demons got irritated when Jesus spoke about the good news. Whatever it was that Jesus was preaching, his message angered the religious leaders who were around at the time. So I'm left asking the question, what was it Jesus was preaching about? Now perhaps the answer is found in one of the things that Jesus is recorded first of speaking about. Right at the very, very beginning of Jesus' ministry, just after he's been tested in the wilderness, if you remember, he entered into a time of solitude, and then Matthew's gospel records these words, Jesus saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, you'll notice there's nothing in that sentence about love. Now, I don't know whether or not these were the very first words that Jesus actually uttered as he began his public ministry, but they were the first words that Matthew felt it was necessary to record Jesus saying. So there must be some significance in that fact. 
When you look at the other Gospels, if we look at Mark, Mark does exactly the same thing. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus' opening words are recorded as this, the kingdom has come near, repent and believe the good news. Again, no mention of love whatsoever. Luke, in his gospel, having first covered Christmas, and doesn't he do it so well? I'm so grateful for Luke and Christmas. He goes on to say something very, very similar. Jesus says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God because that is why I was sent. Again, absolutely no mention whatsoever of love. And then when you get into John's gospel, John takes slightly longer to get to it, but he then gets the story of Jesus' first ministry encounter with Nicodemus, and Jesus is recorded as saying this to Nicodemus, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now again, absolutely no mention of love, but of course it is loving, isn't it, to tell other people the good news of the gospel. I wonder if by now you've spotted the consistent theme. The consistent theme is the kingdom. It's the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven as it's sometimes referred to. It's just another way of saying pretty much essentially the same thing. And Jesus is making this undeniable link between the need to repent or be born again to come into a relationship with God and being part of this kingdom that he speaks of. Jesus says, unless you're born again, unless you choose to enter into a relationship with the Father through Jesus, then you cannot be part of this kingdom that Jesus is speaking about, this kingdom that Jesus says has come near. Relationship with God through Jesus is at the heart of what it means to experience the kingdom. Relationship, relationship, relationship. First with God, but two, as we'll discover in the weeks ahead, relationship with each other as we seek to be the community, uh, God's family. So God invites us, as we've already reminded ourselves this morning, into this cross-shaped, cruciform relationship. Firstly with God, but also a relationship we're invited to with one another as we come into the family. And somehow as we live out that cross-shaped, cruciform relationship, at least in part, we begin to experience the kingdom of God. Now, of course, in the most uh, famous sermon Jesus ever preached, which we'll explore a bit more next weekend, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, and he gives to his disciples a model. It's a model, it's not a script for prayer, and he says this, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I'm thinking to myself, I wonder how many millions of times the Lord's Prayer will be prayed today around the world. I bet it's millions and millions of times. Millions of times people are going to be praying, your kingdom come, but I wonder how many people actually understand what it is literally on earth they are praying for as they're praying, your kingdom come. Now, don't misunderstand me this morning in all that I'm saying. I am not trying to suggest for a moment this morning that you should not be loving. I think you should be loving, especially towards me. I'm not suggesting for a moment this morning that you should not be somebody who prays. I think we should all be people who pray, which is why we give such emphasis at the very beginning of the year to our week of prayer. We should be loving and we should be praying. Given all that the gospel writers quickly reference about the kingdom and that Jesus so quickly says that we should be praying for God's kingdom to come here on earth, whatever that means, clearly the kingdom is an issue that God wants us to know something about. 
In fact, as you, you script um, with through the Gospels, the New Testament Gospels, the kingdom of God, that phrase actually appears 53 times. And almost every single one of those 53 times, the kingdom of God are the words that are pouring off the lips of Jesus. The synonymous phrase, the kingdom of heaven, appears 32 times in the Gospel of Matthew alone. So I think we can therefore conclude that the kingdom was Jesus' primary concern for other people. But what we also discover is that the kingdom of God was also Jesus' primary purpose for himself. I don't know if you noticed in those words I shared from Luke's Gospel, Jesus actually defines his purpose in light of the kingdom. I must, Jesus says, I must. There's, there's kind of an urgency. There's a necessity about the kingdom. I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Why? For this was the reason why I was sent. This was my purpose, says Jesus. Now, Gordon Fee, who is a New Testament scholar, once said this on a, a lecture about Jesus, and I think this is brilliant. He says, you cannot know anything about Jesus, anything, if you miss the kingdom of God. You are zero on Jesus if you don't understand this term. I'm sorry to say that so strongly, he says, but this is the great failure of evangelical Christianity, of which we as a Baptist uh, church are part of. We've had Jesus without the kingdom of God, and therefore we have literally done Jesus in. That sounds really academic and clever, doesn't it? We have done Jesus in by not understanding the kingdom of God. So in light of all that Gordon Fee says here, it's a good thing, isn't it, that we're thinking about the kingdom, because somehow by thinking about the kingdom of God, we're going to get to know Jesus uh, a bit more, and we're going to stop doing him in, whatever that means. So as we wrestle with this question in the weeks ahead, what is the kingdom of God, or what is the kingdom of heaven, this is going to be a, a marinating teaching series. It's going to be one of those series where week by week, by layer by layer, soaking by soaking, we're going to come to understand more and more and more of what Jesus is talking about. All that we're going to discover is become all the more, going to become all the more flavorsome. Now, I'm saying that to say to you, if you don't get this this morning, don't worry, because by the end of six weeks, you might be a bit closer to getting some of the things that we're talking about. You see, over the time, the kingdom of God has been equated with all sorts of things um, since Jesus first got himself into trouble for talking about it. Some have said, well, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is exactly that. It's just heaven. People would say, well, Jesus, when he came along, in so many words, was saying, well, now you can go to heaven when you die. Uh, That's it. That's what the kingdom is all about. Well, it is that, but it's not entirely that. And then there are others who have said, well, the kingdom of God is referring to the church. When Jesus came along, Jesus announced the beginning of the age of the church. So the church, you and I, we, the body, are the kingdom. Well, it is that, but it's not entirely that either. And then there are still others who have seen the kingdom of God as being a world that somehow is infused with, with some kind of divine justice. They, they say, well, the words of Jesus were calling for the kingdom of God to come as we take social action, as we get involved in social action and somehow make the world a better place, then the kingdom of God comes. Well, it is that, but it's not that either entirely. You see, all of these ideas at some level fail to take seriously what Jesus actually says about the kingdom of God. It also fails to take seriously what Jesus' fellow Jews and especially the Old Testament prophets were saying about the kingdom of God centuries before Jesus even came and walked on the earth. Now, let me share something with you this morning. I've got a problem. 
well, tell me something I didn't know. I know that's what you're thinking right now, but I've got a problem, and my problem is this, is living 2,000 years after Jesus walked the earth, my problem is a problem of language. You see, in everyday English, kingdom, at least to me and maybe to most of us, means a place where a king reigns. It's a place. The United Kingdom, for example, is the place where King Charles III rules. If I think more widely, I might think of the Kingdom of Jordan, which is the place where King Abdullah II rules. As we think about the world at the moment, there are plenty of kingdoms that are ruled by tyrants. I wouldn't even want to call them kings, and they're leading cruelly and they're leading oppressively. But when Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God, he wasn't thinking in terms of a a distinct geographical location, but he was thinking of the idea of righteous authority. And significantly, he was thinking about a situation where we can experience and know the, the very presence of God. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, when Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God has come near, he doesn't mean that a place is approaching, but he means that God's own royal authority, that God's power, and significantly God's presence has suddenly come onto the scene in a new and in a different way. So we could paraphrase Mark chapter 1, verse 15, which perfectly summarizes the ministry of Jesus, by the way, like this. God's reign is at hand. God's power is being unleashed. It's near. So turn your life around and would you put your trust into this good news? The message version of the Bible, I think, puts it really well. Time's up. God's kingdom is here. So change your life and believe the message. When Jesus came and said God's kingdom is near, he was calling for action. He was calling for decision. So whenever we hear this phrase, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven in the weeks that are ahead of us, we need to be thinking in terms of God's perfect reign. We need to be thinking in terms of God's righteous rule. We need to be thinking of the authority of God, the sovereignty of God, and we need to be thinking about the presence of God. You see, that's exactly the message that the Old Testament prophets were proclaiming, beginning with Isaiah and ending with Malachi. Time and time again, and we heard lots of them over the Christmas season, didn't we? We heard the the prophets speaking about God's kingdom as God's promise that someday he would return and he would rule in righteousness and he would be present with his people. Now, the prophets, as they wrote that, were looking ahead to an undetermined time in the future when God would return and he would rule and everything would be good and he would be present with his people. But Jesus comes along and he says, the time is now. The time is now. This is the moment. From this moment forward, the reign of God has now come near. So in view of this fact, would you turn your life around and would you live in the light of this truth? You see, it's when we live in the light of this truth that God's rule and reign has come in a new way and God is present and he is near in a different way that God's kingdom gets established. Now, I've often heard speak, uh, Christians speak of God's kingdom as something that we can kind of produce by our own efforts and, and our own hard work. Sometimes people will say something like, it's our duty to, to bring in the kingdom of God, or it's our vision to usher in the kingdom of God, as if we can do that in our own strength. But actually, that misses the point biblically. You see, the scriptures underline again and again and again on this theme of the kingdom of God, the agency of God or the work of God inaugurating God's own reign. In other words, this is all of God's doing. It's not something we can ever create by our own efforts. 
if you like, the kingdom is something that we can only receive as a gift, and then we can experience that gift. And the more we experience that gift, we will experience it more if, if we actually um, kind of understand the gift that it is we've actually received. Our experience of this kingdom is directly proportionate to how we treat the gift that we've received. So whatever our relationship to the kingdom, we cannot bring it, we cannot produce it, we cannot inaugurate it in our own strength. This is all about a work of God. Now what you've probably already discerned from my ramblings for the past few minutes, and I know it probably feels like hours, is trying to articulate, let alone even understand what the kingdom of God is, is no easy task. And that's why maybe Jesus spoke in parables again and again and again as he spoke about his kingdom. And in the weeks that are ahead of us, we're going to need to get used to hearing the phrase, the kingdom of God is like, it's like a mustard seed, it's like a treasure, it's like a merchant looking for pearls, it's like a king who gave a banquet. You see, many of Jesus' explanations of the kingdom of God take the form of parables, these small stories with a big message, which at least in my interpretation sometimes sound more like riddles than they do clarifications. At one point, Jesus said this, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable should we use to try and describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which when sown into the ground is the smallest of seeds on the earth, yet when it's sown, uh, it's sown, it grows up and it becomes the biggest of all the shrubs and it puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can take nest in its shade. This parable is a, an animated simile and it tells us something about God's kingdom by supplying this vivid picture of its paradoxical size. Now, lots of the Jews at the time of Jesus' coming, when he came as a baby born in the squalor of a manger, expected that the reign of God was going to appear in all of its completeness, in all of its fullness, in its full grandeur, fully formed. But then Jesus comes along and reveals the kingdom of God actually begins with the smallest of seeds. It begins in the life of a baby born on earth. The full extent, if you like, of God's kingdom will only be revealed later. It's a now and a not yet reality. It's an already and a not yet reality. Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom of God is something present in his ministry there and then, but he also goes on to talk about it being something that was still yet to come in greater fullness and glory. So what can we say? We can say the kingdom of God is not yet present or future. It's both present and and future. It's the already and not yet kingdom. It's already here and yet it's not fully here. Perhaps it's more helpful to think in terms of an engaged couple or a pregnant mother or a finished but not yet uh, graduated doctoral student. It's something we anticipate and experience in part but one day we will know in all of its fullness. Now, I know for me, I can start to grasp what the kingdom of God is, not so much by the words of Jesus on their own, but also by his works. The actions of Jesus alongside his words illustrated so beautifully, didn't they, the the kingdom of God, and they demonstrated the presence of God in a way that I can start to grasp. And maybe that's true for most of us as we understand the work of Jesus. I think it was certainly true of people in Jesus' time. If Jesus had come along with words only and without accompanying works, I guess the risk is that the message of the kingdom might well have fallen on deaf ears. The people might have regarded him as a dreamer or just another teacher, or maybe, as some even thought anyway, that he was just a deceiver or even a demon. 
But it was through his mighty and sometimes provocative actions, like hanging out with social and religious outcasts and flipping over tables, that Jesus persuaded people to take the kingdom of God and his announcement about that kingdom seriously. The now and the not yet kingdom of God has come near. Jesus' words and his works proved it. So what does all that mean for us today, living in 21st century Christchurch? How do we who follow Jesus follow him in a way that we can live and experience this kingdom that Jesus spoke of? How can we experience the kingdom of God? Well, let me offer three very brief suggestions, and they're super brief, and then we'll think about them more in the weeks that are ahead of us. And the first thing to say is this, is that we should seek to live every moment in the reality of the kingdom of God as we can best understand it. You see, when we accept God's rule over our lives, the moment we choose to enter into relationship with God because of the lordship of Jesus, because of a relationship with Jesus, we are choosing from that moment to adopt the values and the priorities which are the kingdom of God values and priorities. And those values and those priorities can be radically different from those that are in the world around us. And maybe that's why Jesus spoke of a U-turn when he talks about the kingdom. He says, we need to repent to experience the kingdom, literally meaning to turn through 180 degrees, and we need to live our lives in a brand new direction, pointing toward and living for the values of God's kingdom. You see, God's kingdom comes and his will is done every single time we live in that kind of a way and every time we choose to live by the priorities of God. But then secondly, we're to live in the world both as soul and as light. Like Jesus, both our words and our works or our actions, we could say, should proclaim the reality of the kingdom of God to ourselves and to each other and to the lost world that looks on. We should be seeking to live out uh, the reign of Christ in our lives every single day. And sometimes that is a radical and a, it's a countercultural way of living that demands a different set of actions to those of the world, like loving our enemies or confronting evil, doing what we did at, at Christmas of supporting the lonely and the hungry, forgiving those who wrong us, living as active mem uh, members of this incredible family, the body of Christ. You see, every time we choose to do that and we live in a salty and a lighty kind of a way, God's kingdom comes and his will is done every time we do this. And then thirdly, and maybe this is just a summary statement of all that I've already said, we're called to take up our cross and follow Jesus daily. We should seek to serve others. We should seek to glorify God more than we seek to serve ourselves and glorify ourselves. You see, every single time we do that, God's kingdom comes and we experience his kingdom and his will is done every single time we do this. So, all this is now slightly clearer than mud, isn't it? In short, God's rule and his presence ought to impact everything that we're about. It ought to be impacting our actions. It ought to be impacting our thoughts. God's rule in his presence ought to be impacting our relationships, our families, our church institutions, and much closer to home. It ought to be impacting our human hearts. If I were to try and articulate all that I've said this morning in a single sentence, this would be my very inadequate attempt. The kingdom is God's reign in and through and over God's people and in this world. The kingdom is God's reign in and through God's people over God's world. So if you want to take away three words for today, it's in, through, and over. 
You see, when we pray your kingdom come, we're praying for the rule, the reign, and the presence of Christ over every aspect of our lives. So just maybe before we start praying your kingdom come, maybe our first prayer needs to be my kingdom go. Lord, I want to pray that your kingdom would come, but Lord, I want to pray too that my kingdom would go. Let me finish with the words of the Apostle Paul, who I think articulates this reality way better than I've tried to describe this morning. The words from Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, grasp this truth, God has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness. What a truth to grab at the beginning of 2024, a truth that we can stand on, that God has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness. He's taken us from darkness, and because of our relationship with Jesus, he's taken us into light. It says he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of God, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. What a truth to stand on. That because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross, we've been invited to partake in this kingdom of God that he's describing. A kingdom that we can experience because we've gone from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And because we've made that transition made possible because of Jesus, we can know forgiveness of our sins forevermore. Amen. Great truth to stand on for 2024. So if you've not understood a single word I've said, and I wouldn't be surprised if you haven't, then know several things. One, this is a marinating sermon. You're going to get it next week when Graham speaks. No pressure, Graham. But two, perhaps the most important thing to discover is a transaction has taken place and you are a child of God. And the challenge when we become a child of God is to live by our Father's values and priorities. Every single time we do that, the kingdom of God comes. The kingdom of God is established. His will in heaven is done here on earth. And that's our call for 2024, to live in the light of our Father's values. I wonder what that's going to look like for you and for me in the days ahead. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much this morning that we can stand on these amazing words of the Apostle Paul, that you have done a great thing. And that, Lord, in trusting in Jesus, we take that amazing journey from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of your Son, the kingdom of God. And, Lord, we're so grateful that you have made that possible. We're so grateful that you gave Jesus to be our friend and our saviour. We're so grateful that Jesus faced the cross so that that transaction could even happen in the first place. We're so grateful that you, are holy God, invites us to, to call you Abba, to call you Daddy, Father. Lord, in the year that's ahead of us, we long to live for you more fully. We long to live for you more sincerely. We long to understand more completely the values and the priorities of your kingdom, that we would see your kingdom established here on earth as a consequence. And Lord, we pray that prayer this morning that, Lord, our kingdom, our values, our priorities would go and that your kingdom, that your will in heaven would be done here on earth as a consequence of how we live together in relationship with you, but too as brothers and sisters in Christ in the year that's ahead. So Lord, we commit it into your hands and it's with excitement and anticipation we look forward to seeing what you're going to do in us 
through us and over us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the uh, words of our final song uh, really reflect a lot of what Chris has been um, opening up to us um, this morning. Um, And the tune is kind of a familiar one at this time of year. So uh, if you're able, please do stand and we'll sing together, All Glory Be to Christ. (coughs) 